0: Good morning, Missio. Hear now the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, Saul was was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest. Oh, I'm sorry. This is from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. I'll start again. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light fell, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, "'Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me?' "'Who are you, Lord?' Saul asked. "'I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting,' he replied. "'Now get up and go into the city and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit.
1: So one more family business thing and then we'll roll into the text. Uh, We have been trying to figure out how to do indoor gatherings as a community. And we had started rolling out a plan to do indoor gatherings as of November 1. And today we were going to open up registration for November 1 and November 8th, that people could begin to register to worship indoors. But then this week, Salt Lake City changed uh, both how it determines um, COVID risk from going from like the color scale to a low, moderate, and high scale. And it increased Salt Lake to high risk, and then that brought new guidelines and restrictions around what it meant to gather. So that changes our ability to gather. Part of that is why we are doing a 9 and 11 as opposed to just one 10 a.m. today. And it will also shape how we gather together indoors. So here's what we're going to do for the time being. And those guidelines are going to change week to week as the promise of the governor. So this might change in a week. And so, you know, here we go. But what we're going to do is we're gonna open up November 1 and November 8th today. So you can go online and you can register for November 1 and November 8th. But the registration number is capped very low, like 20. And then there's a waiting list afterwards. And so we're guaranteeing that about 20 people can worship together, which is not the number we want. It's not ideal, but we believe that we can do really good social distancing in our sanctuary with 20 people and volunteers. So 20 people get to worship and then there's a waiting list. And so if Salt Lake changes the status to moderate or to low, all those people on the waiting list then get to join in on that service. And potentially we may add a second service to meet, like to create a space for everybody to worship. So that's what we're going to do going forward. It'll change week to week because that's the promise of the state is to change the guidelines week to week so that we can figure out what it looks like to worship. But our goal and our commitment is to find ways to worship together while keeping us safe, while doing what we believe is honorable to those that are around us and to our neighbors and obeying the law. And at the end of the day, we feel really confident that even if we can't worship in the way that we want to, we still get to be the church, the people of Jesus called to live the way of Jesus in the city. So that's what we're doing. Let's pray one more time, and then we'll talk about Acts and, you know, stuff. Jesus, thank you that you're with us as we hear your story. Would it shape us into a kind of people who are like you? As we hear about the way that you welcome Saul, the way that Ananias welcomed Saul, would it challenge the way we think about our own role in this world? And would it make us a welcoming kind of people who enter places that are frightening and even inhospitable to create spaces of safety and home? God, shape us into that kind of people today who are surprised by your welcome and then surprise the world with welcome your holy name we say, amen. Amen. Well, Missio, we are in a series right now called The Missio Dei. That phrase is obviously our namesake, but it is also like a theological idea. And it means that we believe that our God is on mission in the world around us. That we believe that God is up to something in the world, that he is ahead of us, before us, at work in the neighborhoods around us, in the families around us, even in our own lives. That God is at work percolating something in the world around us, and that our job as the church is to join the thing that God is doing around us. It's kind of a simple idea, kind of a simple concept. Like, of course, we believe that God is at work in the world around us, but we wanted to spend an extended amount of time talking about that because it is also such a radical idea that God is ahead of us. That God has not given up on the world, that God hasn't abandoned the world, that God has not finished with the world, but instead God is at work currently, here and now, and in the most unexpected of places, bringing the world to renewal, reconciling all things, healing what is broken and wounded and hurt, that our God is doing that now. And to be the church means to be a people who are invited and join that healing work that God is doing in the world around us. That God is ahead and before, and we as the people of God are invited to participate in that healing, life-changing life changing Work. And so in this series, what we're trying to do is ask okay, so we believe that, like we believe that to be true about God, we believe that to be true of the church, we believe that to be true of us as people, but what does it mean? What does it mean here in Salt Lake City? What does it mean in our neighborhoods? What does it mean at the U? What does it mean in Sugar House for us to be a people who join God's renewal there? And not in an abstract way, but like, what does it mean for us, Missio, for me and for Julie, for Hannah to join God's work here and now? We started the series talking about that the first thing it means for us to join God's work here and now is that God is at work changing the world by being present to a people who are present to the world. So that was the first thing, that God always restores his presence to the world. And that's actually how renewal comes. And if you jump to the end of the Bible story, Revelations 21, the whole thing ends with God's presence coming to dwell in the world. And that's like what fixes everything. Renewal comes from the presence of God. But that's also the story that's running through before then, that God is restoring his presence to his people. And so then our job is to be present to the people around us. So we talked about that, and then we talked about that there are these practices that God has given us that actually help us be present. Practices is the word that we used. Other spiritual traditions might call them spiritual disciplines. Older traditions might call them liturgies. But they are practices that help us Attend to the thing that God is doing around us and open up spaces of God's presence. And that might sound complicated, but think about it like this: a table is a better place to be present than a phone call. And that's a practice that allows us to curate spaces of presence. Now, can you be present on a phone call? Totally, but a table and a meal is a practice that opens up space of presence where something else might happen, where I might hear you and see you, and you might see me and hear me. And in the coming together to work through something difficult, to reconcile, or just have a good meal, something might emerge from that because God promises to be with us as we gather in Jesus' name. So there are these practices that help us open up spaces of God's presence. And last week, the practice that Heather talked about was gathering. One I just mentioned, gathering at the table. It's the thing that we do on Sundays as we take communion together. It's the thing we do in our homes with our families as we gather around the dinner table. But it is also a practice that we're invited to take with us and extend into the world around us, to gather at the table in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and with our families and with strangers. And that as we would do that in these other places, the same thing that happens on a Sunday in our home could actually break out into our break rooms at work. As we gather around the table and invite people into a place of presence. So that was last week, gather. Today, we're going to talk about the practice of welcoming. The practice of welcoming. There's other words for this practice that you might be more familiar with, like hospitality. And there's only two reasons I didn't use the word hospitality. One, it's not a verb, and I wanted all verbs. So, you know. Two, though, I think hospitality sometimes invokes like Pinterest. Which I have a Pinterest board, love it, huge fan. But the idea all of a sudden becomes about like primarily decorating or primarily table setting. And all of those things, I actually think, are really good pieces of this conversation and can be important parts of what it means to be welcoming or to practice hospitality. But the notion of hospitality is also bigger than that and more risky. Hospitality is an ancient Christian practice. Early monks, like the Benedictine monks, were required by the rule of the order to practice hospitality. The Benedictine rule is this— that all guests who arrived to us be received like Jesus. Benedictine monasteries were required to practice hospitality no matter who arrived. No matter who arrived, you had to practice, practice hospitality. So it didn't matter who you were, where you were coming from, what you had done, you were required to practice hospitality to that person. And it'd be kind of kind of like a thing in the ancient world that if you were traveling and you were on a dangerous journey or you were running from somebody like a disgruntled relationship or the king of a country or even running from like legal issues if you were running or traveling and in need of safe shelter you would go to a benedictine monastery because they could not refuse you. They could not refuse you. The game was they have to welcome you. They have to practice hospitality with you. They have to invite you in. When we talk about welcoming, that's getting closer to the idea. Welcoming is about inviting people into our lives, making space for people in the midst of us. Welcoming is about inviting into our lives those who are strangers, those who are others, even those who are frightening to us. Welcoming is about inviting people into our lives that are unexpected, and then it is the willingness to be startled by the generosity of Jesus that appears in that unexpected place. The practice of welcoming is about receiving those who are unexpected, and then all of a sudden being startled by what Jesus does in the midst of that space. The practice of welcoming, even more simply said, is receiving Jesus and receiving like Jesus. The practice of welcoming for Christians is to receive Jesus and receive like Jesus. We see this in the story of Acts 9, in the interaction that Jesus has with Saul and then that Saul has with Ananias. Saul is this character that we will later know as the Apostle Paul. Very famous. But at this moment in his story, he is Saul. He is not a follower of Jesus. He is not a fan of Jesus. Instead, this is what the text says in Acts 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So much so that he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Saul is like this true believer, this zealot of the cause that he has. He is dedicated to the mission of stamping out Christianity, of destroying this very young and arguably fragile church. And it's hard. I was trying to think this week of like, who is a character in our lives that That resembles Saul. And I I just like could not think of a person that would universally represent Saul to all of us. Because you have to, you have to picture a character who you believe hates you. Who you believe is like actively working against you. And so maybe like, maybe depending on your political orientation, there's like a political figure and you're like, that person is my Saul. They are so actively against me. They seem to hate me. They are spewing murderous threats or Maybe there's someone in your life or in your history who has spewed murderous threats against you, who has acted like they hated you, who has rejected you, who has enacted violence on you because they believe something about you is wrong, right? That's the Saul figure of the story. Someone who believes that a whole group of people is wrong and is going to take action against that group because he believes that they are wrong. And he's on his way, this person named Saul, he's on his way to do this work, to enact what he believes is justice against a wrong kind of people when Jesus shows up to him on the road, which is just a beautiful image. There's not anything else to say about that, except it's just this beautiful image of Jesus is like on the road. I like to imagine that Jesus is maybe going somewhere, like in a sandwich, and he's like, oh, hey, look, it's Paul. Jesus is on the road. He's journeying. And Jesus appears to Saul, blinds him, and sends him back into the city, leaving him entirely vulnerable. Or maybe you could say leaving him dislocated and homeless. There's lots of different kinds of dislocation and homelessness that people need to welcome. Dislocation and homelessness can look like a lot of different things in a lot of different places and different people's lives. The most common kind of dislocation and homelessness that we often think about is physical homelessness. And we see that a lot, especially if you live in this area. Right now during COVID, like the, the facilities that meet basic needs to people are running at capacity. Traditional places like libraries where you can get water are closed. So there's limited access to natural resources that people need. So you might see more physical dislocation than ever before. That's a kind of homelessness that has to find a place to be welcomed. But there's other kinds of dislocation and homelessness. There is also spiritual dislocation and homelessness, which I think is what we see Paul left in. Here's this person who's dedicated himself to stamping out Christianity. You learn later that that Saul sees himself as this very educated, very dedicated Jewish zealot. And all of a sudden his spirituality is exploded by this encounter with Jesus. And he is spiritually dislocated. That's an existential crisis. He's totally isolated, totally abandoned. You can be psychologically dislocated where the hurts and the traumas and the wounds of your life leave you feeling disconnected and isolated and alienated from like home or a sense of home or a sense of belonging. If you grew up in a household that wounded you, it can always feel difficult to find a home to belong in. And there can be social dislocation and social isolation where you are actually isolated from friends and family. Maybe you move somewhere else or you just are no longer connected. These are all different kinds of dislocation and isolation that a person can see. And it feels like Saul is experiencing some level of all of them in this moment. For he's blind and vulnerable, and he's in a city that is not his own. His spirituality has been exploded. His psychology is probably reeling, and he doesn't have a community of people to walk through it. He is homeless. So this homeless Saul goes into the city, and then God shows up to another character in the story, Ananias. And he shows up to Ananias, and he's like, hey, just so you know, Saul's here. I gave him your name, no big And I want you to go talk to him. I want you to go hang out with him. And Ananias is like, um, no. This is what Ananias says. He says, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. I feel like Ananias threw that language holy in there just as like a selling point, like we're holy. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call in your name. Ananias is like, I know what this dude's here for. Like I know why he's come. I know why he is here. He has legal paperwork to take me, Ananias, to jail. And you want me to do what? To enter into his home in vulnerability? To enter into his home in humility, to offer myself to him so that he might be healed, so that he could see me and then take me to jail? Ananias has a choice to make. Go to Saul and welcome this homeless man or abandon him for the sake of safety. Ananias has a choice to make. Does he enter into the situation in vulnerability? Because all of a sudden he enters a space where he is vulnerable like Saul is. He doesn't have the power or the control. So there's two vulnerable people that are about to conflict with each other. And that's the choice that Ananias has to make. Does he go and welcome Saul or abandon him? This is always the question followers of Jesus have to ask. Do we enter the lion's den? Do we carry our cross? Do we love despite fear? Do we choose the way of Jesus or do we choose the way of self preservation and fear? And here's the thing. Ananias does not know what will happen. There is no guarantee that if Ananias chooses the way of love, that it goes well for him. That's not a guarantee. It is not a promise. It is not something that is assured to Ananias. People in the Bible who have seen visions from God still behave like huge buttheads. Pharaoh, So there's like no guarantee that if Ananias enters into Saul's home that Saul is welcoming to him, he could still see and then drag him to jail. There's good precedent to see that in the past. Ananias does not know what will happen. And that is always true when we're trying to practice true welcoming because welcoming is the practice of hospitality in the unknown and inhospitable. Welcoming is is always about creating spaces of safety and vulnerability in the midst of danger and hostility. It is about opening up spaces of presence in the unknown, attuning to those who might be threatening, creating spaces of safety that might cost you more than the other person. That is what welcoming looks like. Saul could drag Ananias to jail. That's on the table. And though the stakes are different for us, like the same thing is true of us. When we practice welcoming, we do not know what the outcome is. Welcoming people into our lives who frighten us is hard and frightening for a reason. We do not know what the other thing will be. We do not know what comes on the other side of that. Welcoming people into our lives who have already had a history of fracturing relationship with us could go wrong. In fact, let's just say this, it's going to go wrong. That is frightening. Practicing hospitality in spaces that seem hostile, like jobs that are hostile, or school environments that are hostile, or family units that are hostile, is Frightening To give yourself to vulnerability in a family that is always practicing self-preservation is frightening, legitimately so, because it is not guaranteed to go well. The promise is not that welcoming will go well. Instead, this is the promise, that God goes with you and that God is ahead of you. There's no guarantee that practicing welcome produces what it is that you are hoping it produces. The promise is that God is with you and that God is ahead of you. See, welcoming, as it is about creating spaces of safety, it is also about joining God and extending the Spirit's welcome to others. This is so beautifully illustrated in this story, because Saul has already encountered Jesus. So before Ananias goes into Saul's room, Jesus has already been there. He met him on the road, blinded him, and left him vulnerable. And Jesus is often always doing something in Saul's room already. So Ananias isn't manufacturing something. Ananias isn't trying to create something. The pressure or the weight is not on Ananias to save Saul. Instead, his job is to join what it is that God is already doing. What it is that is already happening. See, welcoming is about joining God and extending the Spirit's welcome to others. But there's something else that's difficult about this. And it's not just fear, though that is a legitimate obstacle to welcome. The other side of the thing that makes this difficult is bias and judgment. Because if you're Ananias and you're trying, you've been told to extend welcome to Saul, it would be very fair to feel judgmental towards Saul. This person has literally tried to put you in jail and has put probably some of your friends in jail. The church is small at this moment. You have probably know people who have suffered because of the maneuvers and political intentions of Saul. And so you're being told to welcome him into your family. It is only logical that you would feel hateful and judgmental. It is only logical that you would see Saul through a lens of the wrongs that he has done, the wounds that he has caused, the damage that he has wrecked on the world. That's always how we see people who have hurt us. Which is what makes what God says to Ananias so interesting in verse 15 and 16. He says this, "'But the Lord said to Ananias, go, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Welcoming is about attempting to see the way that God sees. It is about extending what God is doing. It is about creating spaces of safety in unsafe environments. But the only way that I know to do that is to attempt to see a situation the way that God is seeing it, which is just so different than the way that we often do. It is not defining people by their wrongs, defining people by the damage they've done, even though those things are true. Saul has done those things. But it's instead about seeing them through so much more and seeing a situation as so much more, as a place where God is. Lately, I've had a lot of conversations with people who are asking me, how do we have conversations with people we think are wrong? I've heard it a lot. Like, I was at a, I was at a college ministry on Friday, and they did a Q&A afterwards. That was the primary question. Like, hey, how do I have conversations with people who are wrong? I had coffee with somebody this week. Same question. How do I have conversations with people who are wrong? I don't mean to be trite, but I have been thinking about this in light of this passage. And and here is a suggestion. Maybe stop defining them as wrong first. Like, if that is the primary way that we're entering into a conversation with somebody, even if they are wrong, or even if you fundamentally believe they're wrong, if the thing that is defining that conversation is their belief about something or the way you perceive that belief, we've already missed it. Instead, the chief definition of a conversation with somebody that is wrong is first and foremost, a place where God is a place where God is already work, a place where God is active, and a place where you too might experience the thing that God is doing. See, this is the beautiful thing that happens when Ananias enters Saul's room. He also experiences what God is doing. Last week, we told the story of Acts 10, where Cornelius, who's this Gentile, sends strangers to come and get Peter so that Peter might preach the gospel to Cornelius. When Peter arrives, his mind is blown because there's this Gentile who is so faithful, who loves God so much, who is so kind and generous. And Peter's like, everything I believe about Gentiles and about God is being radically changed. Peter had something to bring something beautiful to bring to that moment. But what he learned is that so also did Cornelius. And even in this moment, as Ananias enters into Saul's room, what he realizes is that there is something there waiting for him. An experience with Jesus. This is what Jesus tells us in his very famous passage of Matthew 25, when Jesus says, to his disciples, you clothed me and you fed me and you welcomed me. And the disciples are like, when did we do that? He's like, oh, when you did it for the least of these, the stranger. When you welcomed them, you welcomed me. You had an encounter with me. It wasn't just what you gave the other person, it's that you actually received me. Now what happens when we do this? When we start to practice welcoming in our lives, when Ananias practices welcoming with Saul, what happens? Well, this is what happens. Welcoming creates spaces for new life to emerge. It creates spaces where new life might begin to grow and begin to emerge. This is how the passage ends in verse 17 through 18. It says this, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, that's a crazy statement in and of itself. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. Welcoming opens spaces of presence. I kind of think about it like, have you ever seen videos of a gun fired underwater? slow motion videos, there's a vacuum that's created in that moment. And I feel like welcoming is sort of like that, We are trying to create a little bit of space in a world that does not have room for it. So that you might see someone and they might see you. And in that moment of attuning to each other, oh, God's present. And you both might have an encounter with the living God. as we practice welcome and as we practice gather and we're going to keep working through other practices, we are opening up spaces of presence. Spaces where we get to encounter God and others get to encounter God with us. And that is where new life begins to emerge. How do we do this in our own life? Well, it begins right here. Every Sunday we you know, now in COVID differently, but every Sunday we try to gather at the table and you'll see that somewhere near you you have these like little plasticky communion cups, very fancy, wafer on top, juice in the bottom. We spared no expense for you. And as you take this, Jesus tells us, he's like, hey, this is my body and this is my blood. They purchased welcome for you. I have made a space at my table available to you. You are welcome here. And so we begin this process on a Sunday where we remember that we have been welcomed into God's kingdom, that we are all like Saul, startled by the generosity of Jesus on the road that is undeserved. And as we gather and we take communion in this space, we are formed more into a welcoming people. And then we leave here. This is only a little bit of our life. We leave here and we go into the week and we practice welcoming with our family at our tables. And when difficult conversations emerge or when painful experiences begin to emerge or when someone says something that triggers us, we begin to try to practice welcoming. How do I see this person? Not as what they said or what they did, but instead as this moment where God is working. We practice in that space. And then we leave our homes and we enter into our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our classrooms. And we practice welcome where we are guests, not hosts, but it's the same set of skills. It's the same set of skills where we enter into strange, unfamiliar, even hostile environments, just like Jesus. And we absorb whatever hostility is there in order to create spaces of safety, homes where together we might experience and encounter Jesus with those around us. This is what it means for us to be the church, to be the people of Jesus in the world, a community who has been welcomed and a people who go and welcome. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have welcomed us. That today as we take our little communion cups and as we sing songs and as we hear the story and as we pray together, that we are reminded that you have welcomed us, received us into yourself at cost to you. God, as we hear that again and as we, as we are reminded of that, would it like just sink so deep into us that we would know ourselves first and foremost as received by you And does that sink into us? Would it then shape us into a people who are practicing welcome in our homes and in our communities and our neighborhoods, inviting others to the generosity of you? Not because we're awesome, not because we have to manufacture something, but because you're already there. That's the promise. You're already there. Doing something unexpected. God, help us to see it. Help us to join you. In your name we pray. Amen. Mister, we're going to keep worshiping God. You have those little communion cups. Just invite you to take those as you're ready, maybe with your group that you're sitting with or as the songs begin, to take those communion cups.
0: And then would you continue singing and worshiping with us today?